This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. Hello, and welcome to Sweet 212, a show which puts the arts in the social, cultural, and political context here on London's Resonance 104.4 FM, but broadcasting all over the world by the Resonance all over the world uh, via the Resonance website. I'm your host this week, Tom Overton. I'm delighted to say that today we have a packed studio and accordingly packed show discussing Ignota Books, a new publisher working at the intersection of technology, myth-making and magic, which launches its first book, Spells, 21st Century Occult Poetry, this week. So, later on, I'll be speaking to the writer and activist So Mayer, who wrote the introduction to the, to the book, and to the publisher and curator Sarah Shin, who co-founded Ignota Books. If you get a chance, we'll also be talking about New Sons, the feminist literary festival which Sarah is curating at London's Barbican Centre next weekend, the 3rd of November. One of the repeated themes of spells is the nature and power of oral traditions, so we're going to start with some readings from the book. First up is Lucy Mayer. Lucy's poems have been published in Poetry Review, Poetry London and The White Review, among others. Uh, In 2017, she was the winner of the inaugural White Review Poets Prize. She is studying for a PhD in speculative emblematics. Shadow. Opened a door onto a drawn field full of tigers that were licking the light. But all I could think at that moment while watching them, so orange and true, was that I should like to be a drawn field with the sun's first joy coming towards me, holding my mind like a thin blue plastic kite before it's given up to the wind, the deep spine resting between beams of light. Thalassa, we see you, says the light, making all the rivers so salty they cry out in books. I should like to wear a curling worm costume to struggle out of, and join the mosquitoes in their frenetic evening performance by a house set into a marshy meadow, all deep set into its place, with a wool wheel inside, with red thread wound all around it. Something like a string of glue coming from my mouth. I am Satter de Grameen. Even the light doesn't know who I am. I take off my deep-sea underwear and I'm just a fox holding a mask made of white clay. Restless, Andrea, I'm such a restless index. Page, every page, I am every page. Divination. My son has a plastic orange cat torch he loves. Open its mouth and a bright light comes out. The cat is surprised at this. Its satsuma voice is completely gone. I spend a great deal of time opening and closing its mouth with a loud click. Show me how you do that trick, for we have all so wanted We have wanted to carry out a search. Thank you, Lucy. 
Next, uh, Jane Yeah was born in America and has lived in London since 2002. Her first collection of poems, Marabou, published by Carcanet in 2005, was shortlisted for the Whitbread, Forward and the Oldborough Poetry Prizes. She was named Next Generation Poet by the Poetry Book Society for her second collection, The Ninjas, published by Carcanet in 2012. Her third collection, Discipline, is forthcoming from Carcanet in 2019. A Short History of Mythology To be a lady centaur, leaping across the hedgehog aisles, is to be in heaven and wearing a tropical lei. Like a shower of spiral curls, my tail is springy. It smells like violets and shit, in a good way. Thank you, pool. I can bounce down a peninsula laden with gorgonzola, harvesting bites between watching my shows and inventing the handsaw. Between weaving a tapestry and visiting space, I will stomp on a few thousand years of Lady Centaur history without regrets. To leap through a waterfall in a novelty t-shirt, holding a gift basket between my teeth. To shake my legs around, pretending to be a freaky spider. To investigate a mole all day, or whatever is stealing my tomatoes, is a paradise. Like a partridge, my head bobs when I run. My boobs bob when I run. When I run into the purple-tinged hills, I can be mythical. Like the very specific flower they use in salads in L.A., as a garnish. If you look at it upside down, you can see the face of a furious boy. And this one's called The Witches. Their split ends quiver when anyone with bad hair walks by. They ransack dollhouses for miniature beds to put their pets in. They follow a strict diet of beef burgers, rare, and gorgonzola for calcium. They don't want to kill all the birds, just the ones the size of dolls' beds. Their oaths and expletives all involve spitting. They understand German because they flew in the war. They are always falling out and casting hair spells on their rivals. Their antics seem like fun until someone finds a fringe in their burger. The birds try to trick them by chirping in German. The witches don't believe in vampires because they know that everything dies. They keep bathyspheres, not children, stored in their spare bedrooms. They think about deep sea diving and the taste of salt and how quiet it is underwater. Thanks, Jane. Uh, our last reader, Jen Kalea, is a veteran of Sweet 212. She kindly came on earlier in the year to talk about translation. Jen is a writer and literary translator from German. Her debut poetry collection, Serious Justice, uh, in, was published in 2016 by Test Centre. She has translated literary fiction and non-fiction and many contemporary authors and figures, including Wim Wenders, Kirsten Hensel and Gregor Hens. She lives in London. I'm going to read The Gift and Slow Acting. The Gift. I was born with a gift, passed down from the sirens on my father's side, the banshee on my mother's the protective charm of song. Once, when only a child, I made a woman weep from my singing. My throat closed up not long after that from a particularly ruthless curse. Some years ago, at the moment of my certain suffocation, and not without an amount of effort, I managed to whisper a lullaby to myself, and it soothed my nerves and body. Every knot unravelled, I became a river. I knew then that it would always be my greater source of power. 
I can increase my potency by sipping on honey, lemon, hot water, oily black coffee, gaseous black tea, cortado, water of the coconut, by sucking on a salt tablet, a birthstone, a lozenge, by snacking on creamed opals topped with a trickle of gems, shards of citrine, aventurine, tourmaline, almondine, negating the produce of the cow, the goat, the sheep. Even at my most lacklustre, I am better than men. They think it's all about the words, that mouthing or howling or pronouncing them is enough. Casting occurs in the space where body and song harmonise. The catalyst is sincerity, and sincerity requires no specific tone or volume. You just have to mean it. And when I say mean it, I mean your intention must always be to save your own life. Slow acting. It was all years ago and disturbing. I've been taking my prescription for nostalgia daily. I let go of not existing, where every object in the present was a broken portal to that past lifetime. Touching it, saying, your name. Not returning, just becoming paralysed. Taste buds numb for the remainder of the day. Suddenly you became susceptible to repenting. Arrived feverish at the back door, repeating, sorry, please forgive me. Insisting, it was a form of love. Even I wasn't far enough gone to ever think that. I bring out a small green bottle of the stronger stuff, bomb three black beads on your tongue with the dropper and send you zigzagging. Thanks very much. Uh, thanks, Jen, and thanks to all of our, all of our readers. Um, you're listening to Sweet 212 on Resonance 104.4 FM. Uh, now we've had that wonderful sample of the, the quality and texture of the poetry in, in, in the book, I want to move over to, to Sarah and to So to talk more about the thinking behind bringing it all together. Um, just to introduce them properly, Sarah Shin is a publisher and curator. She is the, the creator of New Sons, a feminist literary festival, uh, on, as I said, um, at the Barbican Centre on the 3rd of November, and is a co-founder and director of, uh, of Silver Press and Ignota Books. She works at Verso Books. So Mayer is a writer and activist. Uh, recent works include Political Animals, The New Feminist Cinema, published by Ibu Taurus, O, published by ARC, uh, or was that zero? Both. Oh. Oh. <laughs> there, actually, there's zero comes up in a minute. Uh, and Jack Takadish, uh, published by uh, Litmus. They work with queer feminist film curation collective Club des Femmes uh, and tweet at Trouble Mayor, uh, which doesn't have an O, it's a zero. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Sarah, to get us started, uh, Ignota Books, where does, um, Ignota, where does, where does that, wor that word come from? Thanks very much for having me, Tom. So, Ignota means unknown, and it comes from the 12th century German mystic Hildegard von Bingen's invented language, lingua ignota, which is also one of the earliest constructed languages. Um, the name really appealed to me and my co-founder, Ben Vickers, as it reflects our goal in trying to construct a new language, or at least a space in which uh, some kind of glimmer or a flicker of a language or an idea or spirit can emerge. And we also very much take it with this strong feeling that we're in a particular moment of history that requires redefining our relationship to the unknown and the ineffable, or um, as Audre Lorde describes it in Poetry as a Luxury, that which is nameless and formless, about to be birthed but already felt. I also went to an exhibition earlier this year at the Pump House by the artist Sri Wanas Bong, 
Um, and the exhibition was called A Hook But No Fish. So this artist was speculating that lingua ignota was actually an apocalyptic language written for a future where only technology and tools survive, but because it contains the word for fish hook, but none for fish, so the organic matter is dead. So it seems obviously extremely prescient for a world on the, on the precipice of complete ecological mm. breakdown. Um, and I mean, yeah, not only does her work, Hildegard's work, offer us an ecological perspective through her metaphor of viriditas, which means greening, suggesting this renewing life force mm. that's threaded throughout her work. But also she offers, um, you know, directions for us for healing because she was an early psychotherapist as well. Um, I also think of her as a kind of proto-feminist in how she broke through these um, social roles that were available to women at the time. And instead of being tried as a witch for her visions, she actually ended up travelling Europe speaking publicly about her prophetic visions. I think, um, isn't there... Isn't you? Isn't you? Aren't you publishing? You've got for the the future schedule of uh, mm -hmm. of Ignata. There's a sort of you're planning engaging even closer with Hildegard's work. Yes, absolutely. Our third book is actually this kind of uh, experiment. It's a hybrid mutant um, experimental text that we call um, speculative mysticism, which is basically you know it's by Hugh Lemmy and Hildegard von Bingen. So Hugh is kind of reworking or translating Hildegard's writings for the 21st century. Um, to give her a voice that speaks to our times and to bring alive her teachings uh, for our times and to tap into mythic consciousness um, in a way. And the book is introduced by this introductory story by Barney Capil, who is overturning these, uh, say, colonialist underpinnings of discovery narratives. And it has an afterword by Alice Balls. Oh, excellent. Maybe we can have you back on with, with you and Alice when <laughs> that comes to fruition. Um, also, sort of uh, reading around Ignata, uh, I came across uh, quite a sort of interesting sounding story about the sort of the the kind of the genesis uh, story the origin myth of the mm -hmm. the, the, uh, the press which involved um sort of going up some mountains in Peru. So I think well, <laughs> listeners should hear about that. The conversation actually began a bit before Peru, but I think, you know, for the purposes of coffee, uh, copy, not coffee, it sounds a lot better to say Peru rather than in and around Dalston. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, basically the conversation did be begin before that. It just became focused and developed as we were leaving Machu Picchu in the foothills of its mountains. Um, so for a while we could sense that there was something coming together in the meeting points of our, like mine and Ben's interests and perspectives and questions around poetry and technology, astrology, faith, consciousness, yoga, um, mystical experience and um, alchemy, ulipo, <laughs> epistemology, <laughs> young, loads of things. When, so, when, we, when we tag this uh, on, on SoundCloud, we're going to have a lot of, yeah. <laughs> a lot of things to tag in. <laughs> exactly. Um, hashtag young. And that might link to loads of Jordan Peterson things. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah. So uh, originally the discussion was rooted, um, you know, this notion of, you know, setting up a publishing space was uh, kind of maybe rooted around systems of knowledge, how it's possible to know anything. And then also other forms of knowing, such as through the body, through feeling and the relationship of knowledge to being itself. Um, and my amazing colleague, Federico Campagna, he published a book this year called Technic and Magic. Uh, and in this, he talks about the floating man experiment, which was an 11th century thought experiment, which precedes Descartes, um, which argues for the existence of knowledge by presence, a sort of uh, primordial knowledge where there is a coincidence between the subject and the object of knowledge and the process of knowing itself. Mm. 
So this is really just one way of talking about awakening, which is a term that we use in describing the press. We call it an experiment in the techniques of awakening, which is from uh, Walter Benjamin's The Arcades Project, in which he talks of awakening as the dialectical Copernican turn of remembrance by which we can collectively awaken from this phantasmagoric capitalist dream world. Mm. We also say uh, that ignota is an invitation to awaken and at the same time dream, which is, uh, I believe, a paraphrasing of Terence McKenna, a psychedelic pioneer and a teacher who worked with DMT. Mm. Um, and of course, with this, there's many correspondences with religious paradigms of Gnosis, the Epiphanic, and Buddhism, Hinduism, and also yogic practices of Nidra and Tibetan dream yoga. Mm. Um, and I suppose like within this framework of awakening, we're pulling together seemingly disparate threads of, uh, threads of inquiry, such as poetry and technology, perhaps following the Benjaminian logic of montage. He says, I needn't say anything, merely show. Mm. Um, and this is uh, in the hope that we can provide an initiation rather than education, initiation being the acquisition of direct knowledge. As Federico puts it, being the things you know, knowing the things you are. So we're kind of drawing from, uh, you know, these ancient and emergent and contemporary systems of knowledge in the hope of creating a space for a historical consciousness and a self-knowledge that can enable us to navigate the present and perhaps discover a more habitable future. And to us, a deep time perspective seems to provide a crucible for uh, renegotiating the perceptual logic of our existence for this time of political tension, mental health crisis, you know, moribund financial system, uh, when you know all these previous narratives structuring reality are kind of crumbling around us. Thanks. Uh, sort of trying to sort of draw in lots of the sort of wonderful things you just you just uh, offered as part of the story of the, of the press, um, and thinking about the genesis of, the, of this book in particular. Um, Karani Baroka's poem in the collection is called what um is that, is that, is that? Baroka? Baroka, sorry. Mm -hmm. Um uh is titled What Charney Nicholas Told Me, uh referencing uh the American astrologer who I think you've kind of worked with in the past. Uh uh, and that broader interest in the occult seems to me to be uh, a contemporary feminist context, both for the book uh, and the publisher and for New Sons, the, the Barbican uh, Festival I mentioned a couple of times now. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about why you think these ways of thinking might have such renewed currency? You've touched on that a, a bit just then, uh, and why you think they're important and how it shaped the way you reached out to the poets who are now in the book, how it kind of mm -hmm. structured... Sure. Um, I haven't worked with Chani. I'd love to, but... Uh, <laughs> did, I think you did, you did an event. Oh, no. You oh, no. I was just there as, oh, um, sorry, at, the, you, at the Church of Chani at Somerset that. House Studios. <laughs> um, well, I suppose, you know, the, the book itself comes from... And the publisher and you sense, as you correctly say, they all come from a really interrelated place. But perhaps the story of spells is maybe... Uh, I'll just tell that because I think it's illustrative. So mm. somehow I think it was, you know, thanks to the internet and uh, Rebecca's own poetry work, I was led to find Rebecca Tamash, my co-editor in Spells. Her pamphlet, Savage, is out from Clinic, and it's a marvel with sections on mystics, including Hildegard. Um, and her book, Witch, is out from Penned in the Margins next year. And when we met, it was actually during the first wave of the Me Too moment last year. I think it was October mm. last year, yeah. Mm. Um, maybe it might even be almost to the day. Um, but yeah, yeah when, when Rebecca and I met, I'd originally been wanting to do a collection that could provide a sacred space away from the everydayness of harassment and abuse after Audre Lorde's A Litany for Survival, because that's kind of what I was finding in poetry myself at the time, this kind of solvent for, um, you know, a whole tumult of feelings. 
Um, and then Rebecca and I separately talked about doing a collection of occult poetry. But of course, there's so many problems with attempting something compendious. Mm. Um, and then I was wandering around and it became very clear to me that the two books should actually be one. And so that's how Spells was born out of this sense that the occult uh, constitutes, you know, secret practices and discourses which have enabled survival within the oppressions of racist capitalist patriarchy as forms of care. But now we, we're in a time when the occult and esoterica no longer have to be so hidden. And so it's through people like Chani and also Sarah Faith Gottestina, who's an incredible moon magic pr practitioner. She um, publishes these uh, workbooks called Many Moons. Um, the last one is actually for this uh, winter but next year she's starting to do a lunar planet and I really thoroughly recommend checking her out she's on Instagram at goddess um, so through the work of people like Chani and Gottes and many others that, you know, you might call like part of the new, new age. Um, but it's, you know, th these are people who are bringing the occult and esoterica and tarot and all these things to become highly visible in the popular imagination as spaces for healing and justice and liberation. So hmm. Rebecca and I were really thinking along the same lines. And, and when we met, we were kind of finishing each other's sentences and writing a call out. Many of the people we reached out to for the book are from Rebecca's networks, her knowledge and engagement in this beautiful flourishing of contemporary poetry. Um, and we both knew that the occult and poetry have a strong connection in that they both are capable of providing a pluralistic magical language which can produce these metaphors and symbols that can hold the contradictions of life as well as being alive to the world of feeling and the unconscious in the body. Thanks very much. You're listening to Sweet 212 on, on Resonance 104.4 FM. Uh, maybe that's a nice point to, to hand over to, to So to talk because um, one of the, the, the sort of things I mentioned right at the beginning and why it was so nice having uh, the readings at the beginning uh, was because uh, one of the other sort of threads which runs through both So's introduction and, and the poems and the sort of the whole framing of, of this is the the relationship between the written word and oral traditions and all of the the sort of the meanings which layer over that and I wonder if that's something you'd like to pick up on. Or... Sure. I think um, it attaches to what Sarah was saying about this new new age as she called it where the work in the cosmic forces is very attached to the work of social justice which means recognizing rather than appropriating older traditions um in particular indigenous traditions and recognizing when things have been appropriated by being written down mm -hmm. and trying to not replicate that but to stay in presence um mm -hmm. and i think that's very strong in social justice movements since Occupy as well, the mm. sense that we need to be in presence with each other and to use our voices. That was something that came really strongly out of the mm. Occupy meeting. So there's something about this collection which is a little bit like the megaphone mm. uh, at Occupy. The poets are working correctly, amplifying each other. And when you read the book, you really sense threads going through it that come from um, conversations around activism as much as literature, um, as much as spirituality um, that connect. That was um, what really struck me when Sarah and Rebecca sent me the manuscript to write the introduction was how threaded, to pick up a word from Bonnie Koppel's poem, it was how much it formed a, a textile and a texture. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with going back to and thinking about ways of knowing that haven't been capitalized and appropriated and sort of reified necessarily by putting down, being put down in texts. Um, 
and you know the resurgence of things like radio and resonance have been part of that mm. as well enabling people to give voice uh in different ways i think an another thing that um that maybe sort of connects up to some of the stuff that sarah was saying there is, is the idea of uh the relationship between magic and naming and and uh so we have oral tradition and, and written traditions and magic as, as maybe a different lens onto that relationship. Um, is that something? <laughs> I started the essay with a quotation from Ursula K. Le Guin from an interview that she gives in a film called Worlds of Ursula K. Le Guin, which is screening at New Suns next mm. Sunday at the Barbican. Uh, and in an interview talking about her famous book, The Wisdom of Urses, she says to the director, Arwen Curry, magic exists in most societies in one way or another. And one of the forms it exists in lots of places is if you know a thing's true name, you have power over the thing or the person. And of course, it's irresistible because I'm a writer. I use words and knowing the names of things is I do magic. I do make up things that didn't exist before by naming them. And I was really struck by this because often uh, we think about naming as owning. Hmm. So in the written tradition, right, and one of the reasons that it said the Druids didn't write things down was to write thing, write something down was to own it and hmm. therefore take the magic from it. And Le Guin, who also wrote a story called She Unnames Them in 1985, in which Eve takes back the names, the, mm. the generic names that Adam gave the animals and lets them name themselves, is always working with this other sense of naming in her work, which is to do with sharing power, so mm. a form of, of justice. And that felt like it belonged very much to the moment that Sarah, in which Sarah contextualized the formation of the project, which has become called the Me Too moment after Tarana Burke's um, social justice work for survivors of sexual violence. Um, but we've also seen the naming, for example, of Black Lives Matter. The naming more recently won't be erased to insist that trans people can't be unnamed out of existence mm. by the Trump administration. Um, and Sarah mentioned earlier the, the older example of wages against housework, mm. where naming a kind of labor, an invisible labor, allowed feminists to organize around it. So there seems to be this different strand of naming which relates to magic that creates things not to own them, but to share them. Mm. Mm -hmm. And that seemed very palpable in the work of the book. And I think we heard it um, particularly in Jen Kaleha's poem. Mm. Yeah. I think that also um, at, a, at, at some level, language is, well, language is the bridge between one's inner being and, you know, their outer being or actions. So you, this is the idea of magical language or poetry as magical language as well, that, um, and, and spell poems, um, you know, taking, being able to, spell poems as being things that mean that words can influence the universe, mm. that um, used with intention, language can be transformative by influencing our perception of the external world, which enables us to make our own path or our own reality. In other words, to arrive into selfhood. Um, and this is, you know, this is how mantras function. The Sanskrit word mantra means to cross over the mind. Man mm. means mind and tra means to cross over. So mantras as well are magical words with the potency to shift reality. Um, and mantras and, and language used with intention as a spell is something that really connects the micro and the macro, the individual's perception and cosmic existence, um, which is, I think, something that is really strongly brought out in contemporary uh, magical practitioners and astrologers who are connecting this tradition with social justice, as So just said, um, that it's not just an individualistic thing. It's very much about, you know, any kind of individual work also has to be a collective mm. uh 
done with collective intent. So, um, you know, for me, this question of magical language, well, Magic is a language that carries or renders metaphysics in, in ways of giving expression to questions about temporality and knowing and, and all of these things. Thanks. Um, thinking about... Uh, so earlier on when I asked about the, the, the name of the publisher and Hildegard von Bingen is this you know, kind of tutorial presence there, it seems... Uh, so mentioned uh, another one uh, of the sort of the presences which seems to sit behind the whole sort of constellation of the projects and project here. Um, could you talk a little bit more about why Le Guin is so um, one, one of you, either of you, uh, why maybe both of you in different mm-hmm. ways about why, why Le Guin is so important to, to this project and, and some of her her meaning to it and. It feels almost unnameable in some ways, <laughs> partially because I think we're both still grieving mm. um, her death uh, at the beginning of what has been a very tumultuous year. Um, Le Guin is someone who brought the speculative and the feminist together in incredibly powerful ways as part of a community who were doing so. Um, and Pat Cadigan, who was another person involved in that, will be at New Sons on Saturday as well. From the Wizard of Earthsea onwards, she was someone who was invested in, as invested in unnaming as she was in naming. She was invested in decolonizing. Famously, the hero of the Wizard of Earthsea, Ged, um, is brown-skinned, and it took 30 years for a publisher to depict him as such on the cover of a book. And that is very much in tune with the naming and unnaming work going on in Spells as well, in the spirit of Le Guin's challenge, not just to the insistence that only realism is a way of achieving either documentation or political change, Mm. but that the speculative and imaginative play a huge role in leftist and liberatory traditions, Mm. and that to do so they have to be decolonial and decolonizing. Mm. And I'm thinking about um, Kayo Chingoni's poem in the book, for those who mispronounce my name. Uh, I'm thinking about Bonu's poem as well, and also uh, Nisha Ramaya's Following the Event, which is a very Le Guinian story, uh, Le Guin loves aftermaths as well, and I mm. think this is a book that is in the aftermath. It's contemplating what happens in the moment where we see a narrative of the idea of progress and social revolution having failed or come to a, a dramatic, what seems like a dramatic halt, thinking about the Brazilian elections, mm. for example, and how do we go on? And that's one of the reasons I called the introduction the broken open, because mm. it seems like a very Le Guinian place to be. It's not the utopian moment that she's interested in. It's how you continue the day after the revolution when things are messy and challenging and people are changing their names. They're changing how things are being addressed and different voices um, are coming up, challenging each other, making space for each other where there has been no space previously. And that's a very tender moment. I think Mm. that's why it's quite difficult to name how Le Guin is a tutelary spirit here. Um, we could say practical things such as that she moved between prose and poetry. She was very interested in music and, in fact, composed music uh, for one of her greatest books, Always Coming Home, that has just been uh, re-released um, in, for, for a future uh, future society, the music of a future society, and maybe that's what we're tuning into. Yeah, um, 
you said that she connects um, feminism with... The speculative. The speculative, yes. Um, and I think that one of the things that I really love about her work is also her connecting of... Um, uh, well, I mean, so she rendered, she did a rendition of the Tower Teaching, and um, it's wonderful. If you read it, then it really gives, uh, illuminates her anarchism that's threaded throughout her work, um, because it gives you an insight into the huge influence on her thinking of um, non-dualism, um, and as well as that, the kind of cyclical concept of time of, you know, witches, of grandmothers, of people who menstruate, <laughs> and all of this kind of stuff. So, um yeah, I mean, she's a huge influence and in, I think, you know, mine and so and Ben's thinking and the Ignotted Diary, which we created as a tool for discovery and support in, in the attentive practice of everyday life, bears one of our favourite quotes from The Dispossessed as its epigraph, which is, true journey is return. Um, I suppose this kind of resonates with um, this uh, Benjaminian dialectical thinking as, as well, um, that remembrance, uh, that forgetting is remembrance and that kind of thing. Um, but she, as well as this, I mean, she also identified the division of public and private spheres as a function of patriarchy, which is something that New Sons is trying to overcome by creating creating a space. Maybe that would be a good point, actually, just to talk, just to talk a bit about New, New Sons, just to explain to listeners uh, what it is and when it is and Sure. It's uh, on Saturday, 3rd of November. It's a whole day of uh, workshops and talks and film screenings, including the worlds of Ursula K. Le Guin, after which So and Pat Cadigan are doing an after after screening discussion um, on you know, Le Guin's myth of poesis and uh, storytelling and oral traditions and things that we've been discussing. Mm. Uh, what else is there? There's um, also a roundtable by Victoria Sin on speculative thinking as queer practice there's um a poetry reading from spells how could i forget that <laughs> uh with nisha ramaya um and um oh gosh everything is going for my brain um and there's a book fair as well um and a lot of these things are free um there'll be a whole there's over 30 publishers who are representing at the book fair um and it's held at the barbican excellent so it's, it's a kind of you have the written and oral traditions in yeah. the sort of perfect concert there. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Um, I mean, I'm forgetting to mention where New Suns actually comes from because um, the title of the festival comes from the epigraph to uh, Octavia Butler's last unfinished novel, which is There's Nothing New Under the Sun, But There Are New Suns, um, which I felt was really evocative and trying to, in, well, I mean, it's emblematic of speculative thinking and feminist speculative thinking. Hmm. Thank you. Uh, we're hopping around wildly now, but the, uh, something else I also wanted to pick up on. Uh, could you say about the, the Ignota calendar? I don't think I, I've... Could you explain yeah, sure. to listeners a bit more about that? Um, so it's a diary. Um, we wanted to make basically make a diary that um, we wanted. <laughs> so it has full astrological support, meaning that when you go through the weekly planner, you'll it's just embedded in there. You can see when key transits are happening um, so that you can kind of, you know, plan your time and in alignment with um, the cosmos. Um, and that's visible at a glance. There's also a um, full appendix with... Um, a health section with like for example top 10 acupressure points for everyday use for things like migraines and headaches and things like this um, there is also a chakra system overview an ayurveda system overview um, like a tree of life diagram 
Um, what else is there? Um, oh, a directory of magical bookshops uh, and websites um, for things that we recommend to help you in the practice of everyday life. Um, and there's also uh, the astrological support includes like a full fill in yourself astrological chart and a an, uh, key with all the kind of symbols and everything. There's also seasonal tarot spreads by the poets C.A. Conrad and Barney Kappel, who are both in the book, plus uh, seasonal tarot spreads by Sabrina Scott, who's on Instagram at immateriality. Um, it's it's I mean it's really good. I really <laughs> recommend it. The um the weekly planner section as well uh, basically charts a kind of esoteric history. So where there's kind of sections explaining, giving an explanation of significant dates in magical history, which includes, for example, you know Le Guin's death day, also Audrey Lord's birthday, um, kind of Zora Neale Thurston, as well as the magical tradition as well. Cool. Is that so? Is that available now, or is that going to be is that in the 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 pipeline? Or? Yeah, it's in the pipeline. It's uh, available for pre-order on ignota.org. <laughs> um, but it's arriving hopefully in the next couple of weeks in November. Perfectly timed for a seasonal gift for yourself or a loved one. <laughs> there we are. Uh, well, as, as we always <laughs> po- post links on the, on the Sweet 212 Twitter, at Sweet under, underscore 212. So uh, you'll be kept up to date with all, all that kind of thing, uh, including with new suns and so on and so forth. You're listening to Sweet 212 on Resonance 104.4 FM. Uh, Moving back from the agnostic calendar to the, the book at hand, uh, spells, uh, and back to your introduction, so uh, and you, which you, you kind of touched on this idea of the uh, the, the broken open, uh, and I wondered if maybe the best way of moving into talking about that again was if you could read us the opening paragraph just from from that, if that's okay. In the beginning was the word. No, this is about the moment before the word when everything inside you is broken open. Words, together, multiple and multivalent, coming in a rush, sounding in a chorus of force like a waterfall, a dam breaking, a difficult birth. Thanks very much. Why did you think it was important to start start the piece with a denial like that? Well, the piece starts with stealing the Bible. That's the beginning. I grew up in the conservative Jewish tradition and it felt like I had to begin with my own beginnings and my wrestling with that. In the in the Me Too moment, in the post-Me Too moment, I think a lot of discussion has taken place about speaking out. And I'm very interested in the moment before that, how you decide to give voice, what to give voice to, and the qualities of the silence that you're speaking out of. Um we know a lot in our culture about the silence that surrounds the deity and which the deity uses his words to protect and keep. So there's an authoritative silence and an authoritative speech. But by contrast, spells as part of a moment in which there's a plurality of speech uh, that is coming out of silences that are to do with trauma. Mm. Um, and Sarah and Rebecca and I talked a lot about how many of these poems come out of the decision to speak out and how complex that is and how you find yourself speaking out about the process of speaking out. Mm. So it was less beginning with a denial than a refusal. Mm. Um, I think a refusal of a tradition, a refusal to let that tradition silence us, Mm. but also a refusal that that tradition belongs to anyone else because it's dominant culture so we can take it and use it and say that our words plurally are the beginning, but also to recognise that the silence is as important. Mm. 
I felt I should leave a silence there. <laughs> um, but the so this uh, this idea of the, the broken open, it kind of it's um, it also has a sort of a, a sense of kind of cyclical time embedded in it. I think uh, maybe I feel like this is something that also is very important to kind of the flow of the book too and also to the flow of a lot of the thinking in Ignota and a lot of the kind of the the calendar uh too the kind of the breaking what and also when you talked about um climate change as a context in which this is in sort of like the and also Benjamin I suppose as well like the the idea of looking at uh notions of linear notions of, of structuring time and thinking about the the damage which is inherent in those and mm-hmm. I wondered if that was something that you wanted to draw out more. I think there's absolutely something about countering the eschatological and apocalyptic while recognising that the damage is real. Mm. So how do we think with those cyclical notions of time without minimising the damage that has been done? Because mm. anti-climate change thinkers Mm. will often say well there have always been cycles of change in the climate which minimizes the extent of the damage that has been done by the Anthropocene um, and it minimizes responsibility so how do we think with responsibility Mm. while thinking with the cyclical Mm. and I guess Benjamin um, takes up one formulation which is from Jewish mysticism the Mm. idea of tikkun ha'olam which is mending the world Mm. um, and the idea that the world is a a vase or a vessel that was ne- never whole, that was broken by the deity. And our responsibility in sort of Jewish mystical tradition is supposedly to find those pieces and make them whole. But Jewish um, Judith Butler talks about how for Benjamin it's to recognise the flash of the pieces. Mm-hmm. So it's less about some idea of holism and more about attention. Mm. So Simon Weil's idea perhaps of mm. attending to the world, which has been used in, in environmentalism. And it feels like with the climate change movement, with um, feminism, with Black Lives Matter, there's a pushback against apocalyptic and accelerationist thinking to find ways of being in the present, staying with the trouble, as Donna Haraway says, and that maybe spells is another word for that, that rather than thinking of a spell as something that conjures an apocalyptic or disastrous or um, utopian and completist, it deals very practically with attending to the present. It recognises something, names something, Mm. and offers a a strategic solution for it in the moment that comes out of of language and, as, as Sarah said, out of intention. And I think intention is really a key word here mm. because intention is when you realize the moment or the time you're in is broken and that realization is what opens up the possibility of discussion or the possibility of magic mm. did, did you want to say anything else um i mean i think that so basically just did such an amazing <laughs> amazing job answering the question that i don't have much more to add but yes i think in general uh the ignota project is very interested in these notions of um, well, escaping the uh, the arc of the Enlightenment narrative um, and mm. the rationalist narrative. I mean, I think it's really interesting the work that uh, you know people who are working around xenofeminism are doing to kind of maybe re uh, reformulate rationalism. But um, I think that really that 
rationalist notion of kind of linear progress really erases and eradicates kind of pre-existing and concurrently existing forms of knowledge and cosmologies that just think of, conceive of and experience time and history and naming and language in, in just completely different ways. And it's extremely Eurocentric. Um, and I suppose also one thing, you know, which I, this kind of questions question opens us up to is your university challenge subject, <laughs> Tom, John Berger, um, with, you know, this idea of storytelling um, and ways of uh, kind of communicating and sharing experience that um, and, and sharing knowledge in ways that aren't just defined by, um, I suppose, uh, individualised mm. um yeah. Yeah. Well, there's certainly uh, uh, many connections there. Uh, mm. One of the things that struck me, especially during the readings, uh, thinking about notions of time and sort of non-linear notions of time, uh, uh, was the the fact that using poetry to think about these sort of things is, is particularly nice because of the the kind of internal patterns you have within a poem that creates its own space and its own time you know the repeating or non-repeating units you might have and all of the patterns of meter and, and mm -hmm. rhyme and so on and so forth so i think yeah. that it yeah, yeah that becomes a very nice way of looking at it and certainly towards the end of his life berger was interested in in song for those those kind of reasons uh that um the sort of the space, the kind of the communal space that can be created by a song uh, or, or a poem in that sense. Uh, although on the, the notion of Berger and linear time, <laughs> the uh, the most famous, uh, I shouldn't go too <laughs> go too much off on one, I'll, I'll come back very quickly, but the, <laughs> the most famous bit is in the, the, a film called uh, Jonah, who will be 25 in the year 2000, where there's this history lesson scene mm -hmm. where... Uh, the teacher is teaching a history lesson with uh, a sausage, and he's saying that the, the notions of progress and sort of linear time, the, that kind of enlightenment idea you were discussing, uh, is like having a metronome and uh, chopping a sausage up uh, in time. It's not sausage, it's, it's a boudin, it's a black pudding, uh, but it looks like a sausage. Uh, and that actually um, the the <laughs> profit uh, have an ability, the, the, the better way of structuring it is to see sort of certain moments as being holes in time that kind of like connect one to another uh, sort of across that linear motion and uh, so it's sort of the cyclical model but it's it's the idea that certain events or certain sort of things make holes in time and connect one thing to another say like the idea of connecting Hildegard von Bingen and Ursula K. Le Guin across uh, <laughs> across the uh, what you know, would be uh, I can't think what the exact number of, of centuries would be off the top of my head but uh, a number of them and bringing them together yeah, at a yeah. moment like this book <laughs> yeah I mean well this is the kind of um, simultaneity thing really isn't it like uh, mm. we um, the Hildegard book we're kind of positioning as a science fiction and it begins or the Hughes bit okay so Barnu's story is a discovery story of these fragments of Hildegard's writings that were thought to be lost during the evacuation of planet earth in like I don't know 2020 or something um, <laughs> and we start with her apocalyptic writings which position her as a time traveller Mm. Um, and you know things like spells, ritual, the the ritual space in which kind of uh, time you are outside of time it are ways of accessing um, 
different experiences of time and uh, you know that's kind of why on Halloween at our Halloween party we're, we're holding a ritual because Halloween is a night when the the veil between the world of the living and the world of the spirits thins so it's a good time to commune with ancestors and mm. for ancestral healing um, so yeah I mean I think that I like this idea of holes and slippages <laughs> and portholes and things yeah well talking of maybe the you just mentioned the ritual there and I'm sure sure our listeners would, be, would like to hear more about that this is the, the this is the launch event for uh, for spells on the 31st of October at Somerset House, I think. Yep, Somerset House Studios are very kindly hosting us in, in the yeah in London. Um, are hosting us in their Dead House space, which is literally a crypt um, <laughs> beneath Somerset House. It's incredibly atmospheric and uh, just wonderful. And we have some poets joining us for readings. We have uh, some DJs, and we also have a ritual starting promptly at 8 p.m., which uh, is led by Nicole Betancourt Coelho, who I feel like I was kind of fated to meet uh, via Sim Gray, who's a bookseller at Treadwell's, uh, London's magical bookshop, where we're actually holding a spells reading as well on the 9th. So Nicole's ritual is called Nigredo, um, and it uses gongs and drums and voice and ceremony to, to yeah, I, I mean, access this point outside of time and escape existing narratives, um, including the layers of the self, which hopefully uh, would fall away when... Uh, the use of sound and language in this way uh, in combination with uh, the symbolic division of space in the dead house will uh, induce some sort of trance or an altered state and we'll be able to shift our focus from the rational, uh, the visible, the tangible to that which is in the realm of feeling. Um, And uh, I guess this is kind of, you know, it's it relates to this idea of true journey as return um, and awakening these things where everything comes together and at the points at which all things intersect because this is when you know the inner and the outer worlds kind of exist simultaneously without contradiction this is kind of paraphrasing nicole's own language mm. um so that's that's what's going to happen um at 8 p.m very nice i did, didn't someone that house used to in what, at least at one point i think it was the inland revenue offices or something there was some kind of I think it the, was the naval tax officers, yeah, the customs so, house. But it's got a tradition of very kind of linear, extremely institutional dominant culture. So, but yeah. but it's, it's a nice place to kind of exercise Absolutely. in that sense. Yeah, deep in the bowels. <laughs> yeah, do you, do, who's, whose crypt was it? I have no idea, yeah, but I mean, there, there's real crypts. <laughs> <laughs> um, so <laughs> the... Funny how much longer we've got left. The t- time has been suspended by this um, rapid fire discussion. This rapid fire discussion. Yeah, they've gone in all, all sorts of directions. Uh, the so we've talked about Ursula. This is well. You're listening to Sweet Two on Two on Resonance One Hundred Four Point Four FM. Uh, we've been talking about spells, twenty first century poems, uh, uh, published by Ignota Books, uh, and I'm in the studio today with Sarah Shin and So Mayer. Uh, sort of. As we draw towards the the end of the uh, of the of the show, thinking about these things, um, the we talked. Uh, is is there anything we've not covered yet? Uh, I mean, there, there's so much more in 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 your introductions. I, I don't I don't feel that we've we've quite <laughs> quite drawn out. I think the important thing is to read the book, <laughs> and I. I think to read it with intent as well. Mm-hmm. We read a lot all the time with very little intent or attention. We we live in a very textual culture and a very visual culture where we're 
constantly being semi-engaged and so to take time with any book mm-hmm. I think is is renewing but particularly to take time with this book where there are so many voices that are speaking from difference and with difference but to that similar end of a sort of cosmic social justice is is healing um and I think different re- for different readers different poems will have that effect but I'm hoping that it will produce almost a chorus of people reading these poems aloud in their own situation, uh, in their own space, um, that will produce a kind of a resonance, mm-hmm. as it were, um, at a at a, a scale that we don't often think about when we think about publishing and textuality. We think, great, well, that's all bound in a codex form mm. and that's its life. But I think with this book in particular, it's going to have another life in people's voices and people's bodies and what the readers do with that work how they respond to it is the ignota the lingua ignota that will be encountered once the book is published Mm. so there's so much more we don't know about what's going to happen with the book and what's going to come from it Mm. um yeah i mean it was really it feels really nice and right to us that the first book from the press is a collection with you know 36 writers brought together including Le Guin for god's sakes and and that it's polyphonic in that way rather than just being this singular Mm -hmm. single voiced book um and this uh, image of a chorus that you bring up actually reminds me of um, you know a figure who links both of us very closely as well as Le Guin, which is Audrey Lord, because in your introduction you write about um, when Audrey, what is it, she's using her name correctly and then hears a chorus of angels singing. Um, because Lord is feeding into uh, a lot of the thinking behind Ignota as well, that, you know, she says, um, I think it's in the uses of the erotic, I'm not sure, but she says that there are no new ideas, there's only new ways of making them felt, or maybe that's poetry is not a luxury as well. Um, And it seems like, yeah, feelings and the body and the unconscious and these things are what's fallen into the shadow of rationalism for such a long time and been completely devalorized. And we pretend as if they don't exist, but of course (laughs) they really, really do. Um, And they kind of erupt in this aeroboric way. Um, So, yeah. Because I think you talking about the the events that that have sort of been spurred by this... uh, this publication, I think you recently had had one in in Oxford in the the magic exhibition there that was yeah the Ashmolean yeah. spellbound. How was how was that how was that that was because that was a, a sort of reading in a context in a yeah in another sort of institution <laughs> that is your kind of uh, it was it was interesting. Um, I mean, it was really really busy. Mm. which shows that there's a huge public appetite for this kind of thing. And I'm guessing that, you know, it's bringing together lots of different people, including people who are dressed up in witches' hats, which is anti-Semitic, um, and, um, you know, people kind of going out for Halloween with kids and there was a flash mob downstairs and it was it was kind of wild. But you can tell that the curation, well, it's... Um, yeah, there's this kind of thread that's linking it actually to the world of feeling. It's, uh, I believe, connected to a history of emotions um, mm. project, um, looking at the role of emotion in, for example, the witchcraft persecution trials, which was kind of based on stoking these uh, misogynistic um 
sentiments because you know obviously witchcraft persecution is basically femicide i mean we mm. we looked at the exhibition after the reading and it was kind of we were all really bummed out really <laughs> because mm. it was just loads of murder and torture um but you know there's a parallel there as well to our times that um there is this kind of reactionary backlash this masculinist backlash uh and we're, you know, also seeing the rise of strongman authoritarianism around the world as well. And, you know, people like Jordan Peterson invoking myth to stoke these nativist sentiments. Um, so I do think that this realm of uh, kind of potent metaphor and symbol of that, which is what magic and myth kind of trade in, it's being utilised very effectively by the far right and the mm. right, as they always have done. So this is actually quite, um, you know, this is a battleground. Mm. The, something that I was reminded of by some of the things we've, we've talked about today is the fact that the the feminist library uh, is I was just launched a Kickstarter um, to get a, a new home uh, in I think I think they want to move to a space in Peckham mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think I can't remember, I'm not exactly sure I think it closes in November in December so I think you still have time to, to d donate uh, they need to raise thirty thousand pounds for a new home and it's very much a although it's a We've been talking about about the book. It's kind of based around the written word, but it's about sort of um, bringing around those sort of conversations and, and contexts and sort of uh, more kind of community kind of uh, spaces around around the written word. So that's something we'll, we'll post a very much, I think, kind of a fellow not fellow travelling isn't quite the right word but a companion a companion to, to to some of these projects. I will on the suite too on to. Uh, uh, Twitter page at sweet underscore two one two. We'll post a link to that too. Um, so I think just to kind of uh, to close us off, uh, we the feminist literary festival New Sons is at the Barbican uh, this coming weekend, the third of November. Um, we'll post some links to that. There's all sorts of um, excellent uh, events and talks um, and pamphlets and books available there. Um, well, is isn't uh, this, this spell's going to be available there? Yeah, um, I mean, you know, I did a great job in like talking about the festival that I created and they put together because everything left my memory. But I, uh, yeah, there will be a reading with spells um, from spells at the festival, and also Ignacio will have a table there where we're going to be giving out free tarot readings. Oh, there you go. Uh, if you weren't already weren't you already weren't already going, you have to go now. Uh, and so, yeah, we'll post all that stuff on, on the site. Uh, and for some of the reasons mentioned before, we talked about uh, that connection between Hilda Goldenbegin and Ursula K. Le Guin, who will maybe post some stuff about as well, some further reading. I'll get, I'll get some recommendations off, off the, these guys and uh, sort of we'll collate something. Uh, but we thought uh, maybe it would be nice for that reason uh, to, to, to close uh, by so reading uh, a Le Guin poem, which is from the thing. You don't, <laughs> you don't have to carry on for that long. We can cut off when, 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 when you're done. <laughs> um, this poem comes from Le Guin's final collection published posthumously, which is called So Far So Good. Um, and we're very excited to have permission to have it uh, as part of Spells. Its title is Come to Dust, which um, comes from William Shakespeare's play Cymbeline and the song Fear No More the Heat of the Sun, where it refers to um, Christian conceptions of eschatology, of the ending of lives. And Le Guin takes this up in a beautiful uh, and as is always her way, a very wryly 
gently challenging way to think about what dust is. And perhaps there can be no more magical spell than restoring us to our relationship with dust. Come to dust. Spirit, rehearse the journeys of the body that are to come, the motions of the matter that held you. Rise up in the smoke of Palo Santo, fall to the earth in the falling rain, sink in, sink down to the farthest roots, mount slowly in the rising sap to the branches, the crown, the leaf tips. Come down to earth as leaves in autumn to lie in the patient rot of winter. Rise again in spring's green fountains, drift in sunlight with the sacred pollen to fall in blessing. All Earth's dust has been life. Held soul is holy. This programme has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.